Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we're asking that you would, in some powerful way, be among us. We, we pray it every week, Lord. We are desperate for your intervention into our lives, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to be able to speak and really to each one of us individually, Lord. We, your word is like a two-edged sword, and it divides, and it can speak to both the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And so, Lord, with a group like this, we know that there are many different thoughts going on. Some folks are in great pain this morning. Some are celebratory in their feelings today. Some are very worshipful, and some are just wondering if why they're here. And so uh, it takes your word to do the surgery that needs to happen in each one of our lives, and I include myself in that prayer, Lord. We are grateful. So be with us over the next few minutes, and we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You ready to continue this slow but steady progress? We're going to continue to go through this letter to the Ephesians. We are almost finished. We are getting near the end, but we're going to get where we started, kind of a two-parter among this larger series We're going to get to this issue of the armor of God, the armor of God. Last week, we looked at the first two parts of this armor. If we go all the way back to Ephesians chapter 6, we'll just quickly review. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Because that's true, because we have an unseen foe, because we have a, an enemy, and, I, and again, we started this out just very practically. I said there's many people who go to church and just think it's ridiculous that there's some unseen force. I don't know why. Church doesn't make sense without unseen forces, the least of which, not the least of which, of course, the epicenter is the Holy Spirit, the very reason for which Jesus went to the cross. He poured out this spirit, Peter said in the very first sermon, that which you both see and hear. But it wasn't the Holy Spirit actually speaking, it was through men, and so there was an unseen force behind the very activity of the very first sermon ever preached. It says, therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, and that's what we're trying to get to, have we done everything, have we we given it beyond the good old college tries, it relates to our ability to acquiesce with the power of the Spirit. Have we been able to do that and then stand firm? So we looked last week at, if you'll remember, girding our loins with truth. What does that mean? It means to take up this belt that had everything else, that held everything else in place and pull up their robes and tighten it around them. Really, it was their ability to go, all right, we are ready for action. It, it denotes a readiness of knowing the truth, and we'll see that with the concluding as well as it relates to the sword of the Spirit. And then also then last week, the breast plate of righteousness. Now, as we've been going through this, and uh, it was very helpful with Grant Osborne uh, reading his commentary on this, he said, look, there's both an objective and a subjective side to this. Now, you say, well, what does that mean? To each one of these pieces, there is a sub- an objective side. So when we look at the breastplate of righteousness, objectively, we know that it's nothing that we did or do. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in Christ, as we'll see this morning. So we have that on us, objectively, but then subjectively we go, well, when I look down on the inside of my heart, I'm not always seeing righteousness. 
In fact, I'm often seeing selfishness and greed and anger and malice and all kinds of things that I can't imagine would emerge. Uh, the Bible says I have a new heart, and yet I recognize this difference between what I read and hear and then my daily activities often. Now, hopefully over time you began to see an increasing righteousness, but we have to cling to that objective righteousness that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and then also, with the other hand, recognize that we're in process and that I need to be becoming more like Jesus each day, which is the very purpose for which we meet, to be conformed into his image. Now, <clears throat> one of the greatest books of all time, other than, of course, this book, which everything else is just some commentary relating to this, is The Cross of Christ. I cannot express to you how much, if you have not read this book and you want to go deep, and I mean this is a deep dive, so if you're kind of just getting started here, it may be a little bit challenging because there's so much reference here, but John Stott, one of the great preachers of all time, wrote, the, to me, the definitive work on propitiation, justification, all these fancy theological words, just about the cross and its impact. And this is what he says, and I'm going to segue with this comment out of John Stott's book here as we go from the breastplate of righteousness now to our activity. The righteousness comes from Christ, and then what is our activity? What should it lead to? What happens when we do have Jesus come live on the inside of us? Listen to what he says. <clears throat> he says, this is the great affirmation. He saved us. Now catch this. He saved us. It's broken down into its component parts the salvation thing, which are the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, being justified by His grace, and on the other hand, well, on the other, it's our ability to be sanctified. This justifying work of the Son and the regenerating work of the Spirit cannot be separated. Because people always ask, well, I, I always kind of feel like I'm saved by what I do. Well, your behavior is good one day, you feel saved. Your behavior is not so good the next day, you feel unsaved. And I told you last week, sometimes I feel like the worst Christian in the world. I do. I feel like such a hypocrite. How can I express this and cling to this and then act in the way I acted or have an attitude in, in the way that I did? It's just so, it just doesn't fit. It goes on to say, it is for this reason that good works of love follow justification and new birth as their necessary evidence for salvation which is never by works it's always unto works we get saved so that we can work for God we never do anything to be part of his family first Luther used to illustrate the correct order of events by reference to the tree and its fruit the tree must be first and then the fruit for the apples make not the tree, but the tree makes the apples. So faith first makes the person who afterwards brings forth works. Now, many of you will know that well. You will understand that clearly. I, I spend a lot of time with folks, especially new believers, and it is always, especially I would say for the first five or ten years of people's lives in Christ, they struggle with this idea that I'm both saved and yet I'm being regenerated. And the cart before the horse is a real problematic thing here. So if we understand that the righteousness comes by faith, which is what we've learned, then we can understand the next piece, which is what? Well, it is very simply your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Now that's NASB, what this is. And again, think about what we talked about last week. So Paul was 
both writing this from prison, and he also had this illustrations about armor all the way through the Old Testament. Again, six, seven, eight hundred years before the time of Jesus. So what we do is we see him seeing these particular Roman boots. I, I have a feeling he had these in mind when he's writing this. And as I alluded to last week, sometimes they would come up and strap all the way around, all the way up to the knee. They're kind of maybe back in style now. I don't know. Maybe not for men, but I'm, I, I kind of have those. I'd show you my compression stock socks now, and they look a little bit like that because when my foot, I have to wear these goofy compression socks. And they come all the way up to my knee. It's not very cool. Um, but that might be something that came. But theirs was, they were cool. And they were leather. And, and on the bottom, they had these metal studs on them. And they could, and again, as I alluded to last week, from what I've read, they could march twice as fast and overcome other armies just because of their footwear. In other words, they were prepared. So Paul uses that illustration as a picture of, okay, strap up your boots here. Get ready to march. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. I did a deep dive on that word in the Greek, preparation, and you know what it means? Preparation. It's exactly what it means. I mean, it really is. That's what it means. It's a perfect Greek from Greek to English. Do you have the gospel prepared and are you ready to go to, into a dark culture who marginalizes us, thinks we're ridiculous, thinks we have no clue what's going on, thinks we're a bunch of right, far right-wing fanatics, however they view us, uh, to be haters and all the other things that are being piled on much of an, the evangelical community. Say, so, oh, is this an evangelical church? Well, I just say it's an evangelical church because we're interested in evangelizing, which means we're interested in sharing about Jesus. How could we not be? It's radically changed our life. And so I want to prepare the gospel so that I can use my feet to take it into places that other people can't go. Let me tell you something. You have an opportunity to go in places I cannot get. Many of you have places that I cannot. I do not have access I don't have the relationships you have, and, I, and by the same token, I can get into places many of you cannot because of the relationships and the background and the things that God's prepared in my own heart and the, the ability to speak that. And so do you prepare with your feet? Now, when he says this, obviously this is an offensive piece here. This isn't a defensive. We've seen the breastplate, you know, avoiding these arrows, and, and uh, we've seen that. But this is a very offensive piece. It's not very protective. It's to go. It's to take the battle to the enemy, the unseen forces, if you will. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Listen to the language here. And again, Paul draws a lot of the language. You can't understand the New Testament as fully as you need to understand it unless you find its foundations in the Old Testament. That's why we spend so much time in the Old Testament because, again, the New Testament is just an unpacking of what had been written by the Jewish prophets and all the way back to the very beginning with Moses. Well, Moses wasn't the beginning, but he was the earliest author with the first five books. And we see this beautiful unpacking in the New Testament. Now we can understand what the Old Testament means. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this is very interesting because this is picked up in a refrain that Paul uses in the New Testament in Romans chapter 10. 
he's saying that I, I, I read this to understand there's going to be a people that are going to rise up and they're going to go back and they're going to say, not we've, we've met a God that we want to introduce you to, but the very God that you think you worship, it's your God who's reigning because he's talking about actually in the context of Romans 10, talking about Jesus and evangelizing the Jewish people to tell them that your God reigns, but it was Jesus who was the son, the right arm that came that we saw last week. It's powerful. So if we go ahead and look at Romans 10, remember Paul here says in his letter to the Romans, he's writing to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and he said the gospel needs to go out. Remember we saw go therefore, the great commission last week, Jesus' words before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Go therefore, and now Paul's saying, now how are they going to hear without a preacher? We need, and he calls back 700 years before. Remember what Isaiah was saying? He says, you know, we've got how beautiful are the feet. It takes your movement and effort to get in and talk to people about Jesus. You can't just sit there in your house and go, well, maybe somebody will knock on my door one day, and they'll come in, and I'll talk to them about Christ. You've got to use your feet. You've got to prepare your feet to go. Now, he picks this refrain up. Uh, in Romans 10, listen to what he says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't just mean me or Paul or Randy or all the other preachers that attend this, this particular group here. I'm telling you, this is powerful if you catch it. Now get this. What is it? You're the preacher. How will they hear without you preparing your feet with the gospel? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, excuse me, good news of good things. So he's referring, again, back to Isaiah 52. Now, in Romans 1, he says the gospel's got to go out. It goes to the Jew first, and then it goes to the non-Jew. There's an orderliness to that. Now, why would that be? They need to enlist as many Jewish people in that early church as they could. Why? Well, I could give you all reasons why, but one of the reasons, I think, is because they, they are so well-trained in the Old Testament. Once they understand that Jesus was the Messiah, they already have a big leg up on these Gentiles who are polytheists and wondering about, you know, who should I worship? And there's a million gods out there and all this kind of thing, and they don't know. Take it to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's the power of God unto salvation. You have the most important message on the planet. You do. And it's right here, if it is in fact stored in your heart. So, of course, the big word here is what? It's preparation. Are you prepared to be able to articulate the gospel message? I'm asking you this question in its most basic sense. Well, that's the very hope of CRD. It is that we want to prepare you so that you can not only be impacted by the gospel, but you can go and be sitting at a party with your friends at a block party uh, with your neighbors. <clears throat> Something comes up. You talk to about church. And they say, what church do you go to? You say, church at the red door. One of the reasons we named it that is so you could share the gospel. Because then they say, well, what does that mean, church at the red door? That's weird. <clears throat> you can share the gospel right there just by saying, telling what church at the red door is. Well, back in Exodus chapter 12, you know, written some 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. The, remember the Moses? And, it, and you can just share the gospel right there just by saying, well, what does church at the red door mean? Exodus chapter 12. 1 Peter 3, listen to what he says. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. What is that? It's preparation, right? To make a defense, that's apologia. To me, it doesn't mean to apologize. It means to make a ready, reasoned defense for why you believe. Say, so, well, this is why I believe. Well, why do you believe? Well, you know, my, my father was a 
Methodist, and his father was a Methodist, and we're just Methodists. Well, what does that mean? I don't really know, but we're just Methodists. That's not a reason. That's not making apologia. It's not making an apologetic, a reasoned response for when somebody says, well, why do you believe that? Or why do you go? Why do you go to church still? That's weird. I mean, aren't we past that? Are you able to make a reasoned response? And make this to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. It's really important. That's an important part of sharing, isn't it? Do you do that with gentleness and reverence? Well, that's all part of preparation of the gospel. It is. And, of course, I always think this is armor. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. The more I've shared my faith, the more inculcated it becomes in my own mind, and it begins to prepare. And as we'll see in a minute, the helmet of salvation is so firmly entrenched because I've prepared the gospel to share it with other people I've been impacted every time I share it. As I'm sharing it and it's coming out of my mouth, I'm going, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why were you freaking out yesterday? And here I am preaching to me. So, and as I share it more and more and more, what happens? I become more persuaded. I become more entrenched in my mind. It's very powerful. And so when the maelstroms of life come and you have all this things coming at you and all this change and horror show that comes at you, you're able to simply, because you've shared the gospel, you're able to also have it in your mind. If you've never shared the gospel and never aren't able to articulate it, it's very difficult to put on all this armor, isn't it? It just is. Next, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. <clears throat> Again, not an offensive weapon, a defensive weapon. Although I guess you could bang somebody over the head with your shield. But these shields were large shields. Some of these shields that they had back in Romans times weren't just these little shields that you think of where you just kind of like Captain America or something in these Marvel comics where they go, you know, the bullets come flying, like bing, 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 and then they can throw it like a Frisbee and knock people out. I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. Some of these, some of these shields were huge where multiple men could hide behind these things, and they were covered with leather. Why? So when these flaming arrows came shooting at them, they just didn't burst into flames. The leather would actually, would actually extinguish the fire. So they would all kind of hide behind these massive shields. That's what Paul, I think, is thinking when he's thinking about take up the shield of faith, which is able to do what? Extinguish these arrows that are coming at you. Again, you have to say, are these arrows really coming at me, or is this just a figment of my imagination? And again, as I alluded to last week, if you can't see in our culture demonic activity, then as a materialist, you have a struggle to explain why all the evil in the world. It's easy from a Christian narrative to, under, to explain evil. It's very difficult for those who are consider themselves secular materialists that it's all that we can see is what we can see, taste, touch, and feel and observe through the scientific method. Well, if that's true, then you're really going to struggle to explain why the animal kingdom acts like this and why now you get humans that are supposedly have all this intrinsic good and morality and all this other kind of thing and the horrors that, 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 that they perpetrate on not just other human beings but also on the created order, the animal kingdom, our planet, and all these other kinds of things. All the evil that's perpetrated under the name of hum humankind. You're going to struggle with that. Not so with us. We really understand why that is. 
So objectively, this is the kind of faith that, what, is this the faith of the saints? It's, again, core doctrine. Objectively, we can understand by faith. We have faith, and where do we get that? Well, and we can start quoting scripture, and we get a good foundation. And then subjectively, obviously, it refers to the ongoing clinging, if you will, clinging. Sometimes I know some of you, I've experienced this recently too, clinging to your faith. Why? To our core beliefs that make us functionally, what, brilliant in this battle but sometimes we're just clinging on and you say what have you got left i got a little faith left i got a little faith left and get behind that shield don't expose yourself and say i don't have any faith anymore you you just lay yourself out in the middle of a battlefield and you can see that you're still alive and here come the arrows and the swords and everything coming i mean find your faith get behind that shield, however desperate you are, get behind your shield of faith. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction, of, again, of things that we cannot see. Again, this unseen realm is both real and in every way pivotal in our lives to understand. Faith is the assurance of things we hope for. It's the conviction of things. We can't see this realm. I can't see it. Now, I know a lot of people who have had the unseen realm manifest to them at various points. Very reliable, capable, wonderful, close friends who've seen the angelic realm. I've never seen it. I've never seen an angel. I've never seen, I've never seen with my own two eyes. I have to kind of go off some stories. But I have plenty of friends that I would trust with my life who have had in various encounters, and sometimes they're near-death experiences or something. They were about to die. One, one was in Russia. One was overseas again. They were on some missions trips. This one gentleman was on a missions trip, and he was, he was dying. He was in Moscow, and he was dying. And an, he said an angel came into his room. He's a very capable businessman, very incredible guy. An angel came into his room and uh, manifest himself, and he was saved and taken from a place that he was dying. They didn't even have the equipment there to heal him. Uh, to bring any kind of cure, and, and he was saved. And he's, you can't imagine what he's done for the kingdom since then. It's been extraordinary. I serve on a board with him. He's from Texas. You can't trust Texans, but this guy, you can trust. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, this is true. It's just true. So now, so we understand that this is both the, what, seen realm in the sense, objectively, we, I have you. I can see you. You're part of the seen realm, the reality of faith but it's also the unseen realm. And then secondly, I would just simply say this. The Bible is very clear that faith is both a gift and something also we work for. Again, we have that objective and subjective reality of faith. Romans 12, verse 3, listen to what it says. For, through, grace, for, for the, uh, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Boy, we struggle with that. A lot of people tend to think more highly of themselves than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So you see an allotment that God is giving objectively to us as followers. Some people, God gives a huge allotment of faith. And I've always been admired some of the great stalwarts of faith. Some people that would sit in a room and pray most of the day. I cannot do that. I try. I guess, Lord, I, I want to have faith. I just, I try to pray at length, and I struggle to pray at length. And I know these men and women, we have some here in this very church, and we have a massive prayer team led by Mike Mills and, and many others on that prayer team. And they're people that will get down and pray. They will pray. They will pray. 
And I'm very happy that they're part of this body. And I will pray as hard as I can pray. And then I'm done. And I'm thinking about something else, thinking about a sermon. It's not that I'm not in some way communicating with God, but I, I just, I've always, I've had seasons where I could pray long, long, you know, prayers just would maybe go well over an hour. And most of my life is kind of constantly communicating with God. I'm always kind of back and forth with God. And what do you think? And forgive me for that and this and that. And that's kind of communicating on an ongoing basis. But to just be devoted to prayer like the Bible tells us to be, I struggle with that. I just do. My mind just works. I'm not saying I won't get there one day, but that's kind of where I am now. So that kind of prayers. But then secondly, we can also increase our faith. Many of you know back to Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you've put yourself at least in a position this morning, for those of you who are still awake, to hear and your faith grows by hearing the word of God, not by hearing what I have to say, but by hearing what God has to say about reality. And that's powerful. So that's a big part of it. Now, when I think about faith, I, I, I often, my mind shifts back to these times of uh, like the Apostle Paul and some of these, and you just see some of these extraordinary acts of faith. I mean, right in the face of dying, they're, they're confessing Christ to the very end. And I, of course, hope that if I am ever put in that situation, I hope I'm not put in that situation, but if I am, that I would go down with a fight, that, I'm just, that I would continue to confess Christ to the very end. And, you know, if I was being burned at the stake or something, I don't know that. The closest I've gotten that is somebody burned my stake the other night. But, <laughs> but just seriously, I, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but you see this faith in some of these old patriarchs as you, you see it, unpacked in the book of Acts. It's just powerful. And I know this is a little bit of um, artistic license, but this is something like this could have certainly happened. And as this clip, if, if any of you saw the movie, uh, Paul, the Apostles, a very powerful movie, <clears throat> this clip demonstrates the kind of faith I want to have. And if I have that kind of faith, I know I'm going to have a fairly large shield, not against actual arrows, physical arrows, but against Satan's whispering in my ear. Let's watch this clip. So this is how my kindness is repaired. My prison broken into. My guards killed. I will always be those that try and take justice into their own hands. You do not take any responsibility. We were responsible. Wouldn't you be in that cell waiting your own execution? How can it be that by words alone you spit in the face of the emperor? By words alone you seem to defy Rome itself. Words do not threaten to destroy empires. Because perhaps they are not just words. They are the truth of things. You keep saying truth. Truth. It is only a truth according to you. If it were the only truth, everyone would believe it. Not so. Christ, who is truth, rose from the dead. Many still do not believe. Lies, fabrications. If Christ had not risen from the dead, then our preaching is useless. And so is our faith. Oh. And you have no doubts at all? Men do not die for things they doubt. Let me serve a God who is above all other gods, and yet all I see before me is an old man in chains. 
life. A summary of beatings and filthy prison cells. I deserve worse. But there is grace enough for everyone. To be rich, not poor. To be powerful, not weak. For slaves and servants, not be one. It does not take an intelligent man to look around and know that the world is missing something. Do not question the greatness of Rome. And what the love for her sick daughter, what is Rome offer her? Another word and I send you to whatever god you want. You know, that line, it's, it's so powerful. Men don't die for something they doubt, right? That is a shield you can get behind. Of course, Paul's writing this letter from prison, and that was a picture of him imprisoned in a Rome, in, in, with Roman overlords here. And I'm sure many conversations like that were happening, and we saw Paul said, you know, some of these Roman guards are hearing the message. Why? Because he had first his feet shod with the preparation. He had prepared the gospel. He'd been studying his whole life the Old Testament. Now he understands its fulfillment because he was on that horse on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden that light blinded him and he recognizes now Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So this faith is huge for us, isn't it? I mean, you have to have this faith. And sometimes, you know, the beauty of being in community again is that sometimes when my faith begins to lag, if I am well connected with others, sometimes their faith can kind of keep me, keep my head above water. And sometimes maybe our faith or my faith might be able to help you keep your head above the water a little bit. There's a beauty in that. And that's why I like that picture of a shield. A lot of people, only one guy is really holding that shield, but there are others taking, you know, taking a position behind that shield. Sometimes our community can bolster us, help us in times of great travail. And the word, of course, and Jesus is the ultimate, but he does manifest himself through his church. Jesus is manifest here this morning through his people, through you. So that's a big part of it. Now, finally, I want to look at this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. It'll be our last two. So this helmet of salvation, if, if you think about it pretty simply, quite frankly, it just protects your mind against the onslaught of everything that would come against your faith, right? So protecting your mind is hugely important. Set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things, Paul tells the Colossians and many other verses that come to my mind as we think about that. What happens if you're not fiercely protected by a profound understanding of the gospel? I'm going to ask you that question. Well, are you saved by your penance? Are you saved by your perfect life or your religious accomplishments? If you think that, you're not, certainly don't have the sword of the Spirit and the Word and the built of truth. You don't understand the gospel well, and as a result, your mind is open to all kinds of nonsense, and you will fall into one of two things. Again, either legalism, right, or condemnation, or sometimes both. So we have to have this helmet of salvation. Do you, again, understand the Word well enough to what salvation comes through and what it does not come through? And if you have a background, a religious background, that suggests that you have to do all the work to get to God, to raise up to God. You've made the same mistake they've made all the way back in Genesis when they were, again, as we've said before, trying to build their way up to God, weren't they? 
the Tower of Babel. We will build ourselves up and we will make our way to God. And then God destroyed that. Why? Because God says, I'm going to come down to you. You don't have to come up to me. And so a book like this, for instance, The Cross of Christ, very powerfully is, is amazing uh, commentary on being able to understand all these issues that deal with salvation. So that's important to see. Now, again, Satan's schemes are condemnation. He is the accuser of the brethren. So, again, how do you stand firm? You better have this helmet of salvation on because he's going to come to you in the middle of the night and go, you're not even saved. If you were to die tonight, you don't know. Well, that may be actually true. That may be the Holy Spirit saying you need to embrace Jesus and follow him and be filled with the Spirit, be baptized and be filled with the Spirit. That may be the Holy Spirit. But if you already have embraced Christ and you have a relationship with Christ and then that comes in and those thoughts will come in. I don't care who you are, how long you've been walking with the Lord, those random arrows will come at you and they will go right for your mind. Do you have the helmet of salvation on? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we looked at it. This is the first part of this study back in the late 1970s for by grace you have been saved through what faith and we've talked about it and talked about it and talked how are you saved before the king of kings by his grace his extending his hand to you and you responding in faith and even that faith was an allotment of faith given to you and you also heard some of it through the preaching of the gospel. Somebody came into your life or TV here. You got invited to a friend, grandma who prayed for you and shared something, a neighbor, whatever. Somebody shod their feet with a preparation of the gospel and somehow you heard the message of the gospel. Powerful. You're saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift. It's a gift. You don't earn it. It's not a result of works. That's, so nobody will brag about it. 1 John 5, 13, catch this. He concludes this letter. Now, we will do a study of this at one point as we go through verse by verse. I love to go through verse by verse because it forces us to deal with everything, right? 1 John 5, 13 just simply says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to guess, have I done enough? If you're still thinking, have I done enough, you do not have the helmet of salvation firmly placed and you will be, your mind will be penetrated with those thoughts and it is no way to live, friends. It is no way to live. I've been behind and beside and many of you as ministers of the gospel in here too and just friends of others, I've been by, beside many bedsides as people were breathing their last and I'm not finished with it. And I can tell you there is a stark, stark difference between someone who has the helmet of salvation firmly on and someone who does not. And it becomes very evident in the last waning moments of people's lives. I've shared with some of you this story, and forgive me for repeating, but I was in Colorado once and I had a man who had been coming to a Bible study that I had led and he'd just been coming for a little while and he'd been a he was a brilliant guy. He was a, worked with NASA and did some different things. He was a physics guy and did some stuff for the shuttle and all this. He was an amazing guy and a brilliant, brilliant guy. But he, he was trying to get a hold of me because I was his only link in his mind, his only real link to kind of the God thing out there. And he'd been coming to his Bible study. And I was in Colorado, and I finally got a very desperate call from his wife. And she said, we have been looking for you and looking for you and looking for you. Thank God my husband hasn't died. He's got to talk to you. He demands that he talk to you. And I talked to him, and he did not have the helmet of salvation on. But I was 
I had it prepared. My feet were shod. And he got off the phone and he had it on. And everything changed. And within 48 hours, he was dead. Or he was more alive than he's ever been. And I would say the latter's true. So, finally, how do you know that you're saved? Well, it just is written. It's written. It's written. You know, that's where we get this helmet of salvation. It's based firmly on the word, on the testimony given at the proper time from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's one story about one human being slash God-man. The man Christ Jesus, yes, he was man and he was God at the same time. It's hard to understand this union between the two, but somehow, some way, he came down and made everything right. And this is the story of Jesus. Whether your Jewish friends know that or not, it is the story of Jesus from beginning to end. And this is what we finally do to finish off our armor is that we take up the sword of the Spirit. Now, again, let's go back. This is a a lot of times people think of this sword as being, you know, something we see out of Excalibur or something with this long kind of, you know, this huge long sword. In fact, the Romans made great progress in this, and they've become much more lethal as a fighting unit in the physical realm. We're going to use, Paul's going to use the same language here. He says two-edged sword, not a one-edged sword. And a two-edged sword was much smaller. It was only maybe, say, this long. And it could be wielded and thrust in ways that the long, kind of cumbersome, trying to pull it out of the belt, one-edged sword. And it was a lethal battle weapon and, again, gave them a profound advantage over their over all their foes, which really led to this, you know, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, it was because of, again, these shoes and these, and this is what Paul's looking at. And that's why he, again, when we get to Hebrews 4, a two-edged sword. So, but he, he'd gone all the way back to Isaiah 11, clearly. In fact, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't think it's going to come up on the screen behind me, but I want to start this about all the way back in the beginning. Isaiah chapter 11, if you look at this, this is really a beautiful picture of the Messiah, and it starts with, actually the father of David, Jesse, and this is a prophecy of what Isaiah has seen that's going to come to pass 700 years later. It's very powerful. We'll start here in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Remember when Jesus says, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branch, and all that language, he's drawing much of that from Old Testament. He says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Happened at his baptism, if you'll remember. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This fear, is God. Jesus wasn't fearing God in the traditional sense of cowering before God. He was, he was acquiescing with the plan of God. And he put God's interest above his own that we see. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's what this is seen, this prophet is seen. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. What does that mean? He's going to pay attention to this unseen realm, and through faith, he'll be attentive to the Father's voice through prayer. He's not going to be going by what he sees. Churches that are run by what they see can produce all kinds of things. You get thousands of people to come to a church and it's just run just like a normal business or like a concert or something like that where you can get all, all these people to come. I mean, we strive hard not to, not to 
lead in this church by what we see, but what, what, by what we cannot see, constantly trying to be deferential to the Father's voice. And I don't care if we get big or small or smaller or whatever. I mean, we'd like to get, we'd like to see more people come to Christ, but we just want to be led by the Spirit. Well, he's saying this, this, this Messiah figure is going to be, he's not going to be judging by any of this. It says, and righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Again, language we looked at last week as it relates to the breastplate of righteousness. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion, the fatling together and the little boy will lead them and the cow and the bear will graze. Now what I missed here in verse 4, catch it, but the righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth like a sword and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked now this is clearly a picture of Jesus coming back the second time and setting all things right okay every knee will bow every tongue confess but in many ways when Jesus came he was already slaying those who would believe into him through his what this sword coming out of his mouth you get the same picture in Revelation you get a picture I believe it's Revelation 19 where he comes back on this horse and they see the the sword coming out of his mouth. It's a picture of exactly what Paul's picking up on here. It's the word of God. Jesus is the word. And, it's, and the words that pour forth, they, they struck me and made me feel guilty. And then, okay, now I understand why I need to get saved, right? So if we can take the sword of the Spirit, sometimes you have to understand that when you take the sword of the Spirit and you're doing work in the unseen realm uh, to these spiritual forces over people's lives, they're going to feel condemned. They should. Otherwise, salvation doesn't make sense. I told you last week, the moral law condemns us. That's the purpose of the law, to make us feel alienated from God. Why? Because we are alienated from God, and we need to feel alienated from God. Now Jesus makes sense. Before, Jesus is just like a crutch or a help or somebody to, you know. But when we, the full weight of the, the word, but see, the word doesn't just condemn it condemns us, but then the law condemns us as being part of the word, and then immediately the word in its fullness comes and restores us completely through Jesus. Does that make sense? This is important to understand. If we can't wield this properly, we can hurt people. We can damage people more than we can help them. You can take, as I've said many times, you look back at David Koresh and all these cult leaders through, through all the years, and if you know church history, this, is, this just happens cyclically. It just Cult leaders rise and they fall, and they rise and they fall, and they rise and fall. Many of them over the last 2,000 years have done what? They've used these very words to start a cult and to oppress people and to make people's lives miserable and to lead into legalism and everything else. And it is a miserable way to go. And say, well, he's preaching the Bible. You need to know the Bible. If you're just dependent on somebody else to help you. I mean, we all want to help, and there's teachers and groups and things, but you need to know the Word. You've got to have this sword of the Spirit, belt of truth, helmet of salvation. You have to have this firmly entrenched in your mind. Otherwise, you are easy prey for an unseen force. Does that make sense? So Hebrews 4.12, as I alluded to, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, that was a fairly new utilitarian use for swords, two-edged, shorter, much more wieldable, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you read this Bible, you will realize you're not judging it. All of a sudden, it's, it's judging you. 
It's what's so amazing about this book. Most books I pick up, I read, I go, you know, that's ridiculous. Well, that could never be. I, you know, I, I don't read much, you know, fiction. I don't. I read more commentary. It's just what I'm into for what I do. And, uh, but I don't read a whole lot of fiction. But sometimes I read or I see a movie and, it's, and they see a, it's based on a book. And I'm, well, I, I ju- I'm just constantly judging things. I read. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, what, where did you get that? I, don't, that? I don't know. But when I read this, I don't feel that. I feel like it's going, it's, you know, it's got some fingers pointing back at me. And I go, well, you're right. You're, you're, because that's what it says. The sword of the Spirit is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It's able to unpack. If you will allow yourself to be, for the word to do surgery on you, its desire is to remove a cancer, not just fillet you up. It's to remove and do and remove that in you, which is this very sin nature. And have it overcome by the Holy Spirit. So, uh, again, um, as we look at this, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we quote this in here all the time. It's a big part of what we do, especially in this valley, but anywhere. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. So, you got anybody out there in the name of Christ killing other people? That, that has nothing to do with Jesus. Okay, let's be clear. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So the weapons of our warfare. Well, of all the armor implements, what do you see is actually a weapon? Well, it's a sword. So they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, spiritual unseen fortresses. So we are destroying, what are we destroying? Speculations, every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're going into a culture and said, let's rethink that. And yet, what did we learn from Paul? With gentleness and kindness. Let's rethink that a little bit. Maybe, maybe that's, I see where you're going there. You know, let's, let's be kind and be winsome and loving. And, and, but let's rethink that. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Are you ready to make, be an apologist for the faith, make a reasoned so we've got to be able to wield, wield it. And then we can destroy speculations and all the nonsense that says, well, God is this, or God is that, or this is that. I mean, is there's just so much, it weighs on my soul. It weighs on my soul, the culture that we live in today. There is an absolute onslaught against the word. There always has been, don't get me wrong, but it just feels more weighty than it ever has in my life. It just does. So here's the big question. Do you know the word? Would you be able to wield this sword? Well, that's why we come together. Notice we don't have a little 15-minute homily and everybody leaves and do a few. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of things and liturgical readings and all that kind of. But we're a content-driven church. We are very much focused on taking the word and saying, okay, now I'm starting to get that. Okay, I kind of understand. Paul was this guy. Okay, Timothy was that. And then you start to get a handle. Second Timothy 2.15, again, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. My youngest daughter, Tess, is down here uh, before they take off for Zizi's wedding this next weekend. They're going to go up and help set all that up. And uh, she and all my girls went through Awana from the very beginning, and it's all based on that verse right there, 2 Timothy 2.15. A workman that needs not be ashamed. Awana, you know, this uh, acronym or cross stick or whatever it is. Uh, this Awana, it's all based there. I, I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be able to be seen as a workman who is, accurately handles the sword or the word of truth. Can you? Are you able to? Both for yourself 
and your own salvation. And then also, oh yeah, it's not just about me. There's other people out there. Robert, when he goes out among the homeless and he's out there under some trees and there's some people, he needs to be prepared. His feet need to be prepared with the preparation of the gospel and needs to be able to wield that sword so he can go in there and see people come to Christ. Feed them by all means physically, but feed them by all means spiritually. So in the end, have you noticed, as we alluded to last week, that every one of these pieces of armor is Jesus. He is the Word. Is he the sword of the Spirit? He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is the sword. The shoes, the gospel of peace, preparation for that? Jesus is the gospel. He's the epicenter of the good news. The cross, Jesus, it's all revolves, it all revolves around him. He said, the belt, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am your belt. Righteousness, Christ is our righteousness, the Bible says. Salvation, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. There's only one name given to men under heaven. And who is it? It's Jesus. He is our helmet as well. So in the end, you could really say Galatians 3.27 is exactly what Paul's saying. Do you have to get up in the morning? And I, I, some people, especially early in their faith, they feel like every morning I got to get up. And they would kind of play it out. I'm going to put on my, you know, my gospel shoes. And I'm going to put on, they would maybe even kind of pretend that they were doing it. And if they didn't feel like if they suited up in a kind of a figurative, but also a kind of a physical way, every day pray through, talk through that they weren't ready for the day. And if they went out and got hit by a flaming arrow, they're like, oh, I forgot to put my armor on. You know, I was so busy to get down and get my Frappuccino before work that I just completely forgot. I put half of it on and I forgot my helmet of salvation. Now I think I'm going to hell. That's really not the way it works. In the end, you put on Christ and Christ takes all of this. It's important to understand the aspects of Christ. It's like looking at a prism and you see through it and you see, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's also Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. Galatians 3.27, for all of you were baptized into Christ and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. He is your armor. He is your armor. Now, is that good news or what? It's unbelievable news. Put on Christ. You say, well, what does that mean? Ask him. Today, Lord, I don't really know what that means. Would you help me understand that? I'll bet he'll begin to, over the week, he'll begin to speak to you through the Holy Spirit in your mind and say, well, let's try this piece of the armor first. Do you even know what salvation is? Are you saved? Because that can happen today. He may tell you that. He may be speaking to that to you that right now, whether you're watching a live stream or otherwise or three years from now on YouTube or something, and you just came across this weird guy. And then all of a sudden you just... It's just there, and faith is there, and all of a sudden, you, you can feel your sword, your shield going up. Wow, I have faith, and, and I just heard the word, and th their, their feet were prepared, and now I, I, I got a sword, and I, now I feel saved, and I, no, I don't just feel saved. I know I'm saved because of the word, and you realize it's all Christ. It's all Christ. So as we close with this worship song, it is a little different than we normally do. Right, so I love this. It's very, the words here are all power. Every song that is selected is always for the words, and they usually relate to the message. That's the point. So on this, I want us to stand, if you wouldn't mind. And in doing so, let's pay close attention to the words. 
It's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. This is the clothing. It's his righteousness. It's his peace. It's his life. And I think it'll be a great close, and I'll come back and close this in prayer.